All content published by Your Brain on Science is solely the opinions of the authors and does not reflect the opinions of any parties affiliated with them or any additional third parties. Welcome to Your Brain on Science with me, Elena. Today, we're going to be covering a topic that's gotten a lot of attention the past year or two, and that's psychoplastogens. Thank you all for being so patient um, as my voice came back after being sick uh, this last week. Uh, So I'm really excited to continue on talking about plasticity and psychoplastogens today. Um, But before we get into it with our special guest, I just wanted to briefly uh, remind you guys about Zarmin's last episode on plasticity. So just a brief overview, if you didn't listen to the last episode, what is plasticity? It's the constant changes within the brain, whether they be positive or negative, that happen throughout life. So we're constantly taking in new information and learning new things. So when this happens, the connections in our brains change. So you may have heard of the phrase, use it or lose it. Um, That's something that one of my neuro professors, Doug, or dug into our brains. Um, So it's just referring to when we don't use new information or continue to practice a new skill, the information or the skill becomes lost. And this has to do with the new connections in your brain. So if you don't use these connections, they'll be pruned, uh, which means that they will no longer um, be used and they'll kind of just disappear. But when you learn new information, um, the brain changes in a positive way. So if you use it, you get these new connections and um, this new connections strengthen over time. And so as Zarmin mentioned, plasticity can be measured in two ways. So one is by assessing uh, new growth of these dendritic spines on the axons of neurons, which is the part of the neuron that's making those new connections with other neurons or these new synapses. And the other way is through functional testing, uh, where you can measure the activity of these neurons and how these formations um, are happening within other neurons. And you can even measure electrical activity of um, how these neurons are firing or talking to each other. So that's a brief overview on a little bit of what she talked about. And now I just want to talk a little bit about why do we care about plasticity? Like, okay, cool. Your brain changes as you get older, um, as you learn new things, develop new skills. But why does that matter in terms of psychedelics? And like she talked last time, there's been a lot of studies demonstrating um, that psychedelics induce this plasticity that's like life-changing and um It is really cool. And the reason why it's so important to look at structural and functional plasticity is because there's been studies demonstrating that folks with some neuropsychiatric disorders like depression have less formations of these connections and synapses in certain brain areas that are important for mood, cognition, and memory. Areas like the frontal cortex and the hippocampus. So by increasing the neuroplasticity in these areas, the functional and structural neuroplasticity We can increase stability of the neurons, the synapses, cellular output, and allow for more adaptable connections. And this change in neuroplasticity could be referred to as a metaplasticity, a positive global change in the brain that produces changes in cell signaling and ultimately gene expression. And I know that sounds like a lot, and I'm going to bring it back to psychoplastogens here real quick. So 
psychoplastins are a drug class that are hopefully going to bring upon this change in metaplasticity that can be used as a potential treatment for things like depression. And just before we get into talking to Dr. Cameron about psychoplastogens, I want to note that there is non-adaptive plasticity, right? Like I mentioned, and I just went to a talk actually where uh, Dr. Ted Sawyer from Dr. Dolan's lab at Johns Hopkins talked about um, the difference between meta and hyperplasticity. And I really hope to talk to them uh, in a future episode more uh, about the nuances of this. But just before... Um, we get into psychoplastogens and talk to Dr. Cameron, I just wanted to note that this non-adaptive plasticity can be referred to as like a hyperplasticity. And there's a question I get a lot with psychedelics when uh, discussing this topic. So, right, I research psychedelics as a treatment for substance use disorders, and that's something fairly new in the preclinical field. And so, Whenever I talk to addiction researchers about psychedelic-induced plasticity, a lot of people um, will say to me, like, well, you know, drugs abuse like cocaine and amphetamines, they also produce this plasticity, which is actually not good um, in the nucleus accumbens because it causes more signaling associated with the addiction pathway. And while this is definitely completely true, uh, there's a way to kind of reconcile this, and I really like this use of hyperplasticity versus metaplasticity to, to do so, because um, the plasticity of cocaine, for example, can be described as hyperplastic, which means, you know, that this is super fast onset, um, and it produces these dendritic uh, changes in these uh, medium spiny neurons, but it goes away without repeated use, but when cocaine is repeatedly taken, these plastic alterations become problematic in terms of that addiction reward pathway. But with psychedelics, these produce those metaplastic changes in the brain in the frontal cortex, which are fast in onset, but they're found to be sustained up to weeks um, following one dose and found to have like these induced adaptive changes in function, like Zermin talked about in some of his papers. Uh, but yeah, if you want more information on metaverse hyperplasticity, we're really hoping to do an episode in the new year. But in the meantime, you can check out uh, Dr. Dolan at Johns Hopkins lab. Back to the topic at hand and why this all relates. So like I mentioned, when we're talking about these psychoplastogens, keep in mind that these compounds are developed to produce a sort of metaplasticity. Uh, these psychoplastogens have become a very hot topic in the psychedelic field, and as researchers and companies move towards optimizing psychedelics to produce the positive effects without some of the negative ones. And so in order to talk more about what psychoplastogens really mean and what this means for the psychedelic field, I really wanted to invite Dr. Lindsay Cameron to chat with me today. Hey, Lindsay. How's it going? Pretty good. How are you doing? I'm good. So tell us a little bit about yourself and your research. Um, like, so where you started, where you are now, and kind of what you're up to. Yeah. So uh, my name is Lindsay. I grew up in Canada. I started studying my undergrad degree in pharmacology, and then I did graduate school in chemistry and neuroscience. Um, I became interested in psychedelic research. Once I got to graduate school, um, I joined Dr. David Olson's lab. In general, I'm a pretty big advocate for mental health. And what intrigued me about the field of psychedelics was that even though there were only a few studies, they seem to have these really strong effects for helping people that have long been struggling things with like depression or anxiety. Um, and only a single dose uh, was often enough to, to have these really prolific effects. 
Um, and so actually when I started in grad school, there was almost, there's very, very little psychedelic research going on. And I didn't know uh, if I was going to, I didn't know if I was making a mistake. I didn't know if people would take me seriously or not. But over the past uh, couple of years, the field has really gained a lot of momentum and more and more people are researching it. And it's really panning out to be a, a hot topic. For sure. I, I feel you on that when you, like, when I first was doing my bachelor's degree and I was interested in psychedelics, I would, like, talk about it and people would, like, stare at me like I was, like, what are you doing, you know, kind of thing. Yeah. So I definitely get that. It's it's wild to see how it's, like, evolved to now. Absolutely. Um, but, yeah, so you recently completed your PhD, like you mentioned, in um, Dr. David Olson's lab. So what were you kind of working on there? I was basically trying to study psychedelic compounds and see what it is that made them therapeutic and what it is that made them uh, hallucinogenic. And I basically wanted to know, do you need hallucinations in order to have a therapeutic effect? And a lot of people do think you need that, like to undergo this big transformative experience um, in order to come enlightened on the other side. Um, but you know, no one's ever actually really tested this. And it might just be that hallucinations kind of happen in parallel and are an independent effect of, of a therapeutic effect. So, so I really wanted to see if, if you needed hallucinations in order to have a therapeutic effect. Nice. Is that similar to what you're still working on as postdoc now? Not really. I'm looking more at circuit level effects, um, how different brain regions talk to each other after psychedelic use. Oh, that's cool. That's nice. really cool. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, for today, we'll just focus on kind of what you did your PhD work in. Um, but yeah, so I guess the theme here is the psychoplastogens, right? It's a fun new term that just came popularized in the last few years. So I've heard that uh, Dr. Olson kind of coined that. Is that true? What's the story there? Yeah. Uh Dr. David Olson, my previous boss, he really likes to make up new words. And so <laughs> psychoplastogen was one of the, the first words he made up. Um, I think this is a tool development thing. I think, he, you know, he's a chemist by training and every time they invent something new, they get to name it. So I think he just loves to name new things and come up with new <laughs> words. Um, so he made psychoplastogen, which comes from psych, meaning mind, plast, meaning molded, and gen meaning producing. So uh, being able to mold the mind is the idea here. Um, and basically it's something that, it's a, it's a drug or something that causes measurable changes in plasticity, changes in the brain mm -hmm. after a single administration. Okay, so does it like, is it more of like within a short period of time or can it last like longer than I guess the acute administration? So usually that causes changes pretty quickly after an administration. So within 24 to 72 hours. Um, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it lasts for a really long time. So that's a, that's a whole other thing. Okay. Yeah. Because I know like some people, when they say something has psycho like plastic effects, um, it's typically looking at like a post-acute like 24 to 72 hours. But some people have... Uh, reported like a sustained psychoplastic effect over a longer period of time. So I didn't know if that was like mutually exclusive. Yeah, no, you can definitely have both. And I think a really good example of that 
is something like ketamine, right? That has mm -hmm. these really rapid onset, fast acting antidepressant effects. Um, but you know, the effects that ketamine has only last a week or two. Um, right. So, so that would be a good example. Yeah, that is a good example. Um, okay, so uh, am I missing anything else, I guess, about like the just basics of what a psychoplastogen is? No, I think people get scared of the word because it's kind of long, but it's a pretty simple, yeah, straightforward idea. Yeah. Yeah. Well, cool. Um, so do these do these compounds have to be psychedelic or like can they be like non-hallucinogenic psychedelics as people call them for lack of a better term? <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, they definitely don't need to be hallucinogenic. And another good example is ketamine, right? So ketamine doesn't cause these intense hallucinations that something like you know, LSD or psilocybin would, um, but it still has this ability to cause these rapid acting effects. Mm -hmm. So this is kind of like leads in exactly to what I did for my dissertation, which was trying to make these new analogs of psychedelics that didn't have to be hallucinogenic, but they were still long lasting. Mm -hmm. So uh, what was like your, I guess your dissertation baby compound, like what was your favorite one that you worked on? My favorite one would definitely be tabernanthalog, uh, which is a drug that uh, we developed during uh, my dissertation. And the way we kind of made it is we, so again, I worked in a chemistry lab. So we, we took the structure of a classic psychedelic called Ibogaine and we just broke it down into its component parts. And the idea here was that we just really wanted to see what part of the molecule does what. For example, is is this, you know, left side of the molecule therapeutic and this right side, the thing that makes it hallucinogenic and you know, this other part, the thing that makes it cardiotoxic or things like that. So, so basically we, we just broke it down into all these little pieces and tried to figure out what piece does what. And then we took all the good pieces and stuck them back together. And we called this drug tabernanthalop or TBG. So, so it's basically like you took apart a puzzle and then took the specific pieces and made a new puzzle. Yeah, that's a great example. Nice. <laughs> So um, how does TBG, I guess, compare to, to Ibogaine, the parent compound? Um, so therapeutically, it seems to, to help with, uh, has the, it has antidepressant effects. And then it also helps to stop uh, drug self-administration, both in alcohol and heroin uh, self-administration assays. So you get... Um, Usually it's mice or rodents to kind of self-administer these compounds um, and they tend to like that. But if you give this drug, they, they have an extreme reduction in their intake of alcohol or heroin. Um, so it helps it to be kind of anti-addictive. Um, so Ibogaine has reported effects to, to do all of those things as well. The issue with Ibogaine is that it's quite toxic and in fact, it was actually used as an antidepressant in France uh, for a number of years, but was pulled off the market because it was giving people heart attacks. So one of the things we did when we invented Tabernanthalog was we tweaked it so that it would have much, much fewer cardio effects, like effects on the heart. Um, so this is not only does it seem to be 
non-hallucinogenic and have these antidepressant, anti-addictive effects, but we also tried to make it a safer drug. Gotcha. Yeah, so all the good stuff without the bad stuff. Exactly. (laughs) Are there, like, other psychedelics that that's kind of, like, happening for, I guess? For example, for, like, psilocybin, is there something that can, like, take off the psychedelic part of psilocybin or like dmt is there like a non-hallucinogenic analog of like either of those yeah and i've actually uh presented on it before and i have a paper that's being reviewed right now on that so our our lab actually has um a library of non-hallucinogenic analogs and we've we've published um i mean the tabernanthalog paper was definitely the most uh the paper that caused the biggest uh, commotion, <laughs> um, but we do have other papers out there that we've made other non-hallucinogenic analogs too. Um, and so it's not like, you know, tabernanthalog is an exception or the only one. It's just kind of a, a logical thinking. And once you figure out the tricks to make something, um, it's a matter of tweaking it and then improving upon that. So, yeah. Gotcha. So it's not necessarily making a, like, better per se drug um, than something that already exists, but it's something that can be more beneficial for a larger, I guess, number of people or without some of the negative side effects. Yeah, exactly. Um, So you mentioned earlier about um, whether or not like the experience of psychedelics and like the trip part of the psychedelics is necessary for the therapeutic effects. So I just want to know, like, could you just touch a little bit more on that and like how taking away that mystical experience per se um, can affect, I guess, the drug outcome? Yeah. So um, like I said, there is a camp of people that believe that the mystical experience is really necessary for having therapeutic effects, but it's never really been tested until, until we tried this. Um, And one thing that I think is, is really necessary is that, Classic psychedelics, I mean, in the clinic, they seem to do uh, a great job. Um, That said, they do require a lot amount of time to be spent in the clinic. Um, You have to take like a full day off work. Sometimes it's a couple days. There's a lot of prep that goes into it. It's expensive for both the provider and the patient. And um, as it stands, it's just not, it's not super accessible the way the infrastructure is now. And the idea with the non-hallucinogenic analogs is that we may be able to decrease that kind of time needed in guided sessions. We may be able to make things that are safer that don't need you know, medical assistance to be there for you. And so in general, um, I think that it will increase the accessibility of these compounds. And honestly, it's often the people who don't have that time and don't have that money to go to a clinic that are the ones who need it the most. So, yeah, so, so you, so we might not need the mystical experience in order to, to have this, this therapeutic kind of effect or change in our um, emotion. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think it's definitely worth exploring and, and we'll see how this turns out once it's put into humans. Yeah. Um, Is there any talk of taking TBG to clinical trials? Yeah. So it's actually been licensed um, by a startup company called Delix. 
and they are thinking last i heard my last update was that they were going to put it into humans in 2022 so in theory it's soon uh but (laughs) yeah yeah, so we'll see how that happens that's pretty cool i didn't know that that's awesome um yeah because i think like like you mentioned there's definitely a pro and con for both classic psychedelics and like these analogs right in the clinic because not only what you mentioned of like the people who need it most often can't just take off work for multiple days at a time or you know afford to go to these specialty clinics but also like a lot of people with severe mental health conditions um, might be you know prone to um, just like psychosis or um, absolutely increased anxiety so that they could definitely benefit from something that's not hallucinogenic Absolutely. You're totally right. I just feel like, yeah, that's super cool. Um, Is there anything else, I guess, on this topic that you want to talk about or? No, I just, I guess in general, I just think that it's incredible how far this field has come in the past couple of years. And it's just nice to work together to, as a community to push the field forward. And that's all. I really do appreciate the collaboration and being able to meet you and now form this um, friendship per se, you know? Yeah, <laughs> so, for sure. Yeah, it's very cool. And I am very happy that you could set up this uh, time to be on podcast today and talk about uh, your dissertation work. And it's such an interesting topic. So I'm really excited to see what comes out of uh, your future work as postdoc and also, with the TBG trials, that's cool. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. And thank you so much for having me today. Yeah. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in uh, to listen to me and Lindsay talk about psychoplastogens today. And as always, please subscribe and share our content and like us. And if you're interested on reading more about Dr. Cameron's work, Um, or any other stuff out of the Olson lab, I'm going to be posting um, some really cool papers from them on our blog site that you can check out. So thanks for listening. And we're going to have one more episode um, before Christmas, and we're going to dive into microdosing. So get ready to hear me and Sarmeen do a crash course in all the microdosing literature next week. So thanks for listening and just, you know, keep in touch. Mm -hmm.